Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. May God add a blessing to the reading of the word, now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Spirit, be with us now. Give us to us minds that understand, hearts that love and believe. Give to us hands and feet that obey. Help us to see the wondrous and glorious blessed call that you have given, Lord, to your people, to all of your people. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. Please be seated. Saints of God, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, I welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our worship through uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. This morning, we return to our study, or to our worship, I should say, and to consider the, the blessed call of God. The blessed call of God, for in the first two verses of this divinely inspired letter, the apostle declares three times the blessed call of God. With God's help this morning, we shall consider three points, the first two being the longest, the last one being the shortest, but the main point being the blessed call of God. Throughout the sermon, the main point, entitled, if you're looking for one, the blessed call of God. Uh, Number one, the blessed call of God to Paul. Verse one. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I do believe that we are quite familiar with the conversion of Saul. I think we're familiar with that. The man who once persecuted Christ and his church. So I will not recount all of the details, per se, of that conversion experience. It is found in Acts chapter 9, if you'd like to go there, um, and if you'd like to revisit yourself, then it's there. For our time of worship today, uh, we would like to consider the revealed reason, the revealed reason why it was the eternal will of God to lovingly pour out His grace on this man, who previously, the Scriptures say, breathed murderous threats against the disciples of our Lord. Why it was the the blessed will of God to give the blessed call to the apostle Paul, to the office of apostle, I should say. Now, we know of Paul's account encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. We know about this. Last week, I actually mentioned, and I'm asking for forgiveness, and I'm also correcting, I mentioned that Saul was knocked off of his high horse when the heavens, uh, when the light of heaven shone around him. Here's the correction. We actually have no record of Saul ever being on a horse at that moment. So there was no horse for Saul to be knocked off of, at least according to the scriptures. It is most likely that Saul was walking to Damascus along with his companions when Christ appeared to him, not riding a horse. So with that correction out of the way, after uh, meeting Christ, Saul, which was his Jewish name, Paul being his Roman name, was blinded when he was helped by his traveling companions to finish the trip to Damascus. So these companions that are traveling with Saul are, are not believers, by the way, but they're helping Saul to convict to to complete the journey to Damascus. He was going to Damascus, and his companions help him to finish the trip. Um, Realizing it or not, Paul, Saul, obeys the command of Christ, who tells him, get up. He tells him, get up into the city, and it will be told to you what you must do when you arrive there. 
So whether he realizes it or not, he's being helped by his companions. Saul is obeying the command of Christ. He got up. He enters the city with the help of his companions because he's blind. And then he waits. Um, Saul is literally blind. Enters the city of Damascus, the place where he had purpose to go in the first place. The place where he had gone to with letters of authority to find and imprison any who were belonging to the way. That is what Christianity was, was initially called the way. And he's led to the home where he would have made plans to stay while he would be there interrogating Christians. But now he's the one being interrogated. God is interrogating Saul in his soul while he's blind. The man who had believed that his spiritual sight was impeccable had learned that all of this time he'd been blind. That all of this time he was wrong. And now the Lord allows Saul a time of actual blindness. Um, he had realized that he, hit, he had been blind this whole time and now the Lord allows him a time of actual blindness. During this time, he does not eat. <clears throat> During this time, he does not drink for three days. No food, no drink. Remember who this man was. He, he's, he's realized that he was wrong. He's realized that all of this time, he's been blind. Remember his credentials. Saul, or Paul, will say of himself that he was second to none. Philippians, he, he cites his credentials to the church in Philippi, Philippians 3, 5. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he is of the nation of Israel, that he himself is of the, the tribe of Benjamin, which has some status, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means if there ever was a Hebrew, he was a Hebrew. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. He was a strict um adherer to the law. As to zeal, someone who was zealous for the faith, he was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, he is saying of himself that he believed himself to be blameless. This man was um, cream of the crop, if you will, of Judaism. And with all of those credentials, now he is sitting there literally blind Realizing that he has been blind all along. That he's been wrong all along. That all he has done in opposition to Christ has been not just wrong, but could it be a sin? Not just wrong. Not just I was incorrect. But I was sinfully incorrect. These are probably some of the things going through his mind over these this three days of blindness. Remember, Saul was there among the mob who stoned Stephen to death. The scriptures say that, depending on what version you read, that he was either holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen, or he was watching over their coats, standing there, giving his approval as a man who confessed faith in Christ was stoned to death. I don't know if you've thought about what, what stoning is like. Have you ever been hit with a rock? <laughs> it doesn't feel good. Being stoned to death as this man stands by and literally approves the, the stoning of a man until he is dead with rocks. All that he argued against the Messiahship of Jesus. All that he argued that the Messiah could not be Jesus. Because his kingdom has not been established. Rome is still in power. He could not be the Messiah. He was crucified. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The resurrection, therefore, also could not have happened. It was a hoax. And now... He's confronted with the fact that he that's that standing before him was the resurrected Christ. The one who said, I am Christ whom you are persecuting. 
the one whom he thought could not be, is, and standing right in front of him. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed to the point that he could not take a bite and he could not have a drink for for what was what amounted to three days. God was merciful to him. What was he doing for three days? Just bumping into walls as he's blind? Probably not. Christ actually answers the question of what he's doing. The Lord appears to a disciple who lived in Damascus, the place where Saul was going to imprison Christians, a disciple named Ananias. It's believed that Ananias was possibly one of the 70 disciples of Christ. But he is a follower of Christ who lives in Damascus. And the Lord appears to this disciple and gives him instructions concerning, of all people, Saul. He informs Ananias that there's a man named Saul. And right now he's praying. What was Saul doing for three days? Well, the Lord tells us that he was praying. What was he praying? We don't know what he was praying, but I imagine a number of things were going through. I imagine a number of things were being petitioned to the Lord. Ask of the Lord. Probably clarity. I I, I am confused. What has happened? Probably wisdom. What do I do next? Direction? Maybe that his sight would return? Help me to see again? We don't know. But we do know that in the midst of the things that he's praying, one of the things that he receives from the Lord in that prayer time is a vision. He receives a vision of a man coming to him, laying hands on him and allowing him to receive his sight. The Lord says, and there will be a sermon on preached on Ananias one of these days, out of all of the people who are believers of Christ in Damascus, the Lord chooses Ananias. Ananias, Saul is, is having a vision of a man who is coming to lay hands on him. You're the man. I was, I was floored when I was reading through Acts 9. I've read Acts 9 more times than I have fingers, right? Floored by, by reading slower the account, but with more thought behind the account of, of all the people that God is choosing to go and lay hands on the man who we revere as the Apostle Paul. The, the, it's the man that we, we go, oh, I didn't even know much about him. His name is Ananias. Not only will he lay hands on the man, but in a few moments we'll learn that he also baptizes the man. Of all the men that would be chosen, the Lord chooses Ananias. The Lord says he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, and you're the man to come in, to lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias says, Lord, I hear you. But I've got an issue, and the only issue is that man has come here to take men like me away in chains. I've heard about this man, he says in Acts 9.13, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. This man that you want me to go to, you want me to walk into the lion's mouth, you're saying, to go into the lion's den, you're sending me there. That man has wreaked havoc on your people in Jerusalem. And now he's here. The lion has come here. And he's he's come with a roar. We've heard it from a distance. Now he's here. And he's come with authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. You're sending me into the lion's den. And the Lord says, go. There's a purpose. We're talking about the, the blessed call of God. Why is God calling the Apostle Paul? Go, he says to Ananias. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. Why did God give the blessed call to Saul? Because the Lord reveals that Saul, Paul, would be a chosen instrument of his. To do what, Lord? To bear his name, to bear my name, Christ says, before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And then also, and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Here's what the call consists of. 
He will be an instrument. How will he be used to go before the, the Gentiles, to bear the name of Christ, to, to witness on behalf of Christ before the Gentiles? Also, to do so before kings. It's what Paul does at the end of his life. He bears witness to Christ before the end of his life. Also, to go to the sons of Israel. And then, I'm going to show him that he's going to suffer. What is the, what is the blessed call of God for, for Saul? To be a witness before all men. And to suffer for the sake of God. In Christ Jesus. Paul, in his opening words of the church of Corinth, declares that he's been called. That he has received the blessed call of the Lord Jesus Christ. That his writing to them is in fulfillment of his of the blessed call of God. Paul's not writing just to write. He's writing in accordance with or in in obedience to in fulfillment of the will of God for his life in calling him to be an apostle. First Corinthians, second Corinthians. Paul is fulfilling the blessed call. It's why he has been chosen by God. He is being used as the instrument. He's making the right melody that God has made and fashioned him for. The blessed call of God to Saul is the eternal, is of the eternal will of God. God did not notice Saul one day. That's an interesting character. Go through a process of reasoning as he observed him and then made a decision on whether or not he should choose him because of internal factors or external factors. Meaning God did not observe Saul externally notice his Jewish roots, his intellectual capabilities, his zeal. And, and the like. And based upon these external factors, God was not moved to then choose Saul. Does that make sense? There wasn't something that Saul was doing that made God go, hmm, yeah, I like it. it show me more. In the same way, that there, was not, there was nothing that you and I were doing that made God go, yeah, David's a good, looks like a good guy. He's got a good upbringing. Got some, there's some challenges. I, I think I can, use, I can work with that. Why? Because, as we know, we're going to deny this for many reasons, because God is not passable. Right? There's nothing that comes upon God internally, nor externally, that, that, that's in him or outside of him, that, that causes him to be moved to act. Rather, it was and is the eternal will of God that Paul would be called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. This is from all time. And it finds its source in the intellect of God. We'll get into that maybe another time. All that Paul experienced in his life is ordained by the will of God. This is God's will. It's God's will that always has been. Paul would be born of the tribe of Benjamin, according to the will of God. Also born as a Roman citizen, according to the will of God. Eternal will of God. Paul would be raised in the law of Moses, according to the will of God. A Hebrew, if there ever was a Hebrew, according to the will of God. Trained under the famous teacher Gamaliel. Because of the eternal will of God. Uh, called, uh, elevated to be a Pharisee. Zealous for the faith. A zeal that would lead him to persecute the church. All of this was the will of God that God would use. All of those things that Paul once boasted in. Amen. These things that Paul once view, viewed with as great gain. So that he might know the surpassing value of knowing Christ. For whose sake, he says, he's counted all of those things as rubbish. That in comparison to Christ, the things that he once valued, the things that he said, this is what makes me valuable. He's lost all of that. Just so that he might know and, and gain Christ. And to tell others, to be used to tell others about the surpassing greatness and value of Christ. That Christ is worthy of forsaking all things in order to be found in him. I counted none of it, none of it, none of it as my gain. 
not the school I went to, not the degree that I earned, not the people that I rub shoulders with, not the places where I'm invited to speak. None of those things give me value. None of those things make me who I am. Saints of God, if you are a Christian, do not think for one second that it's what Pastor Antonio or Pastor Isaiah do. Those are the things that make Christians special. No, what makes anyone anything is being found in Christ. What makes anyone anything is being found in Christ. All of those things are a loss in comparison to knowing and being found in Christ. I'm not special. Isaiah, God bless him, is not special. You name your favorites, they're not special. Christ is special. And they will be the first, I pray, to say, no, we are not. Christ is of intimate value. Can we be helped by me and Zay and others? Yes. But only insofar as we are faithful to Christ. Only insofar as we tell others that everything in your life is worth losing and leaving for the sake of Christ. Was the will of God that Saul should be called an apostle. And listen to this. I love this when you read through Acts 9. And when he's called, there's not much time wasted after initial call. In faith and obedience. Again, a sermon will be done on Ananias one day. He obeys. He goes into the lion's den. He goes to the house where Saul is supposed to be staying. Who opens the door? Not blind Saul, I, I imagine, his traveling companions who were not believers, who are there to arrest men like Ananias. Who opened? Knock, knock, knock. Um, the, the lamb has opened, has knocked on the door of the wolf. And the wolves open the door. <laughs> Can you imagine the, the emotion going through Ananias? What are they going to do to me? Well, what Ananias knows is by faith that the Lord has sent him there. And this is what will happen. I'm going in there. I'm going to lay hands on that man. I'm going to, he's going to receive his sight. And upon this, what happens? I love the first words of Ananias. The first thing that Ananias says to Saul in Acts chapter 19, here's what it is. The first word, it's brother. The first word he says is brother Saul. I'm reading through Acts, and my heart falls onto the floor along with the rest of my body. Ananias, the man of faith, goes into the lion's den, sees the lion who's now been turned into a, into one of the lambs of Christ, one of the sheep of Christ, and recognizes it and says to him, Brother Saul. Can you imagine Saul's voice? Saul's, Saul's hearing because he can't see. All he knows is that first voice is called him brother. And in the next words, the Lord Jesus, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road. He knows Saul. Saul now knows there's something divine happening. A man has been sent here. The man, the, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm sure Saul may have said, what's your name? And he may have said Ananias. It's the very name that Saul heard or saw in his vision that would come and lay hands on him. Immediately when he lays hands on him, he's filled with the spirit. He regains his sight. Something like scales or scabs falls off of the eyes of Saul and he, he regains his sight. And the man who once believed that he could see could now really see. Now really, really see. Not just with his eyes. Now he sees. Now he knows. Now he's received the gift of faith. And then immediately he's moved to public confession. Immediately he's baptized. What do I do next? I'm sure the question is. Ananias said, well, you must be baptized. You've received faith. You've received the gift of the Spirit. Now you must be baptized. And Paul takes his faith to public. Paul goes public with his faith through the waters of baptism where all can see he identifies with the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And then the scriptures say in Acts 19.9, and then he took food and he was strengthened. Now for several days, how, how long is that? It's probably not too long. Saul is with the disciples who were there in Damascus. 
the ones whom he's come to arrest, he's now meeting with them. And immediately upon meeting with them and, and hearing their testimony, they're, they're hearing his testimony. He begins to proclaim. Listen to this. Jesus in the synagogues. Saying, he's the son of God. What a fascinating tale, true tale, of the mercy and grace and goodness of God. And his blessed call upon the apostles Saul and Ananias. The very synagogues that he would go to, to show his former brothers that he is with them to oppose Christ. He now goes to those synagogues with great um, boldness. And to say of all places in a Jewish synagogue, Jesus is not only... The scriptures don't say that he said, and I know that, they, they, that it's all implied, that he's the Messiah. He says he's the Son of God. I don't know if... if, if Son of God kind of goes past our ears and we go, yeah... He's saying he's God. He's saying that he is of likeness of God. That that son has the son has the likeness of God. That he is one with God. Paul is saying Jesus is God. The purpose for which Paul was called immediately began to reveal itself. He began to proclaim Jesus is the son of God. And, and you, if you can imagine, Paul, with his superior understanding of the Old Testament, the, the, through the working of the Spirit, begins to put the pieces together. If you and I think we, we have a sense of the Old Testament, Paul was trained in the Old Testament. Therefore, the Spirit began to put all of the pieces together concerning the Messiahship of Christ, the, the divine nature of Christ, that he is both God and man, the very root and branch of David. So it, it rings true when Saul says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I'll, I'll finish the story for you. As he keeps preaching, the, the Jews in Damascus don't take kindly to it. They plot to kill him. And this famous story of, of Saul ends in Damascus, at least, of him being led out through a hole in the wall to get out of the city didn't stop him from preaching though it would it might stop some of us by going I, I probably should keep this to myself uh on to the next city he goes why because the calling of the blessed call of god to paul it came with a certain kind of necessity or compulsion to preach the gospel you know people who, who are um compelled to do things you, you you see them and it's just like it's who they are it's just what they do right it's, they, they can't, they could not not do that if, even if they tried. They are compelled to do it. It's in their nature. It's who they are. Paul's nature was, I am under compulsion. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The call of Paul came with a certain kind of, of compulsion. He must do this or else there's no reason for him to live. It's why I exist, Saul says. The calling of the apostle, of one who, apostle, one who was sent out by Christ to preach the gospel, to plant churches with the seed of the gospel, was a divine work that he was called and compelled to do. Because it was the will of God for his life. From the perspective of man, it was, it, it's a reaction to the gift of grace. Uh, let me be clear, we cannot repay um, God's grace. But with the gift of grace, Produces a heart posture of gratitude. From the perspective of men, Paul might say, it's out of gratitude that I'm doing this. We, we talked about that, right? A debt of gratitude cannot be repaid. We know this. We're not earning salvation. Uh, we cannot earn salvation. The debt of gratitude is a posture of heart and mind that says, all that I am is yours to do as you will. What is the will of God? Then go. I am sending you to the nations. Go and proclaim Christ. It's the will of God that this Jewish man with a Roman citizenship would be an apostle to the Gentiles, to preach the gospel and to help the church to be firmly established in the teaching of Christ. 
This comes with, the call of Paul comes with both instruction and correction. It's what the word does when it goes forth in faithfulness. When, when the word of God goes forth, it does these two things. It instructs and it corrects, all for the purpose of making us like Christ. It instructs, which is what's happening now, and it also corrects, which we'll do in, in the next point, to make us like Christ in the end. It's what Paul will obediently do in order to fulfill his calling. If Paul is to live in accordance with the blessed call, he must proclaim Christ, um, plant churches, and as he does, that will come with both instruction and correction, which we'll see as we march through our worship through the, the book of Corinthians, the letter to the church at Corinth. He fulfills his calling. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And now here he was, there in Corinth, because of the blessed calling of God. He's been used to plant a church in Corinth because of the blessing call, blessed calling of God. He's been, been charged to help these saints grow in their sanctification because of the blessed calling of God. Now, that's his, his role. Yes, as, as one saved and then one who is uniquely called to be an apostle, to do all the things formerly mentioned. Secondly, now, the blessed call of God to the church. Here's why Paul has been called, and now to us, the blessed call of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse, verse 2. <clears throat> to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. You hear that word again? I would first like you to notice, brothers and sisters, that the apostle addresses the singular church. The church singular. He addresses the one church in Jesus Christ to, before he moves to the, the plural nature of the church. That is, the individuals within the one church. Now, by addressing the singular church first, Paul is setting the stage for what he will address in the coming verses concerning divisions in the church that have the potential to fracture the unity that God has established. Saints of God, we have solidarity in Christ. In Christ, we are one united corporate entity. We are the church, the one church. In Christ, any idea of individualism within the church is removed. Any idea of one person being greater than another does not belong in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all under Christ. Any, any idea of I'm a red Christian or I'm a blue Christian is not allowed in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any idea that this is a red church or a blue church is not allowed in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the church under God. We are not the church under the, the United States of America. We are the church under the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the holy nation, not of America, not of, of, of any other nation you want to mention. We are the, the holy nation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We give our allegiance, I'm going to say this clearly, to no flag. We give our allegiance to no one person, human alone. We give our allegiance to Christ and to his word. And that alone. <clears throat> Any idea of individualism is removed from the church. Paul will proclaim to the church in Galatia that was divided, listen to this, because of cultural differences between Jews and Gentiles. He will say to them in Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew or Gentile. In Christ, there is no such thing as Jew or Greek. There is no such thing as your slave and your free. He even go as far as to say there is no such thing as even male or female. That doesn't work this time and day. It does work, but, but with clarity. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the point he's making. We are one. The point being that if we are in Christ, we are not permitted, based upon God's word, to be divided because any idea of individualism, any idea of ethnic culture, any idea of social mores, we are not allowed, based upon God's word, to be divided. 
Speaking of divisions in the church, Paul said to the church in Ephesus, Christ broke down the barrier of, of the dividing wall. The, the wall that once separated us has been torn down. Why? So that Christ, Ephesians, he says to the church in Ephesus, so as Christ, so that Christ may create in himself one new man, not many different men. One body, verse 16, to God through the cross by having put to death hostility. Hostility is put to death in Christ. Christ has accomplished this. Saints, I would say to you, um, you don't need to do it, but when you have a moment, look around. Marvel at the work of God in Christ Jesus in his church. Look around this building, look around the world at the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Our triune God has united men and women from various walks of life into one place for the purpose of exalting Christ as one people. One people. In this, in this unity, we most accurately reflect the glorified church for all time who will be perfected in unity in Christ. If we are in Christ, then it is incumbent upon us. It is our responsibility as we are being perfected to maintain and pro pro protect the unity or peace that has been established by God, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Ephesians four. <clears throat> Be diligent or make every effort to preserve. There's the key word to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. God, the Holy Spirit, has established peace through Christ. Through Christ, we are one. Peace is not something that we create. It has been created through the work of our triune God. God has given us peace. Peace is now something that we must now make every effort to preserve. Preserve meaning to protect and to protect it at all costs. Unity, peace within the church is something that we must at all costs seek to preserve and protect. If we agree that we are one in Christ and that the unity of the church rests upon our obedience to such commands that call us to, to preserve and protect the peace that has been established, then we will avoid at all costs becoming agents of Satan. Who seeks to bring division in the church? What, what does Satan want to do to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? To divide and conquer. He wants to fracture the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to create divisions. And we must, as those who are one in Christ, make every effort to not only protect, to preserve, but also to avoid at all costs becoming an ally of Satan. Giving ourselves over to evil acts that tear or, God forbid, attempt, because it will not be, to rupture the unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must not give in to Satan's temptations. Paul reminds the church, you are one in Christ. You are one. We are one in Christ. You must, we must preserve the unity that God has given to us. This cannot be overlooked. He's speaking to the church of Corinth, but he's also speaking to us. Light has been given to you. Light has been given to me. Light has been given to us. We have, we've talked about this already. Light was given in the darkness of Corinth. The church of God is, is, is now alive in Corinth. That, that formerly only dark place now has light. That place where Satan once ruled, and we'll get to to, to the, the false gods that ruled over the cities, over that city. God is, has brought light into that city that was once only darkness. Amen. They have been granted by God a blessed call to come to him. Well, how do we preserve a unity that God has provided? Well, we must remind ourselves what we have been saved for. Why have we received the blessed call of God? If, if Paul was called uniquely by God to be a gent, a, an apostle to the Gentiles, 
why were those who were rescued, the Gentiles rescued, through the preaching of Paul? Well, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 1-2, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Here it is, saints by calling. Another version, NIV, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. What is a way to preserve the unity by the Spirit? It's to live as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. What is a way that we can ensure that we preserve and protect the unity? It's to pursue holy living and to live holy before God. Paul moves from the oneness, that is the, the, the fact that we are all united in Christ, in, in light of our response to our calling, to now the, the, to now the church at Corinth, who is set apart in terms of our individual pattern of living. We are one in Christ, now to your individual pattern of living. How will how must you live? Holy. Live lives that are dedicated to, to the Lord, set apart for Him who purchased you. You individually. Yes. Uh, you, uh, Isaac and Senior and Mary and David. You individually. Why have you, Hilda, why have you been purchased by Christ? To be holy. To be holy, to be set apart, to live a life dedicated to the Lord. Not just for the church in Corinth, but for the church everywhere at all times. To be set apart, sanctified unto the Lord as holy. Amen. Dear ones, you have been, you have received the blessed call from God to be engrafted into the church, not into the building, into His church. You've been uniquely called by God so that you may live a life that is uniquely set apart to Him. You have been called to live in such a way that everything that you do in some shape, form, or fashion is done to the glory of God. You know those sermons, don't you? All things, whether you eat or drink, done to the glory of God. All things, even, even the things that, that may seem insignificant, like eating and drinking, done to the, to the glory of God, done well. All things done well with, with a with a type of posture of gratitude in your minds and in your hearts that says my life, all that I am is live, lived out of gratitude to the one who has graciously given me light. One way to preserve peace and unity in the church is to live that kind of way. Because if you're living that kind of way, you're not going to give in to the temptations of Satan to be one of his agents who create division in the church. Not for those who are living holy. Not for people of the book. We have been called to live in uncommon ways. Uncommon to the world. The world that is passing away. But to those who are in the church, this life of, of holiness, it must be a familiar one. It, it must be one that you recognize. Darkness is, darkness must no longer be familiar to us. Meaning, we must not be comfortable with darkness. We must not be accepting of darkness. We must not be tolerant of darkness. We must not be those who encourage darkness to keep being dark. Who encourage sinners to keep on sinning. Especially... We must not encourage those who say they are, of, they are of the light to go play in the darkness. Nor should we look at those who, are, who say they're of the light and not be moved when they are playing in the darkness. By the grace of God, we recognize light. And now, by the grace of God, we expect those who are in the light of Christ to walk in such a manner. Why were we called into the light? I'll take a pause for a second. Do you remember when you were called into the light? Do you remember when you were in, not, not exactly the same, but, but figuratively speaking, do, do you remember when you were in the same kind of blind condition as Saul and then realized that you had, you had been blind this whole time and now, that you, and now you see? Do you, remember, do, you, do you remember where? Do you remember when? 
Do you do you remember when it was as if someone turned on the lights and you could now see for the first time? And that you realize you've been walking in darkness this entire time. Yes. Yes. Why were you called? Now, now that you remember the when and the where, why were you called? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you why you why you weren't. Mm-hmm. Certainly not to continue in darkness. Right. And certainly not to slip in. And out of light and darkness. We are called to be holy. The apostle Peter declares that you have been set apart by God. Here's watch this. To be a holy nation, the church, that's one. But then goes down individually to be a royal priesthood. Individually to live sanctified, set apart lives. We are called to live differently than the world. The church of God in all places... The church Catholic, we would say, has been called to be not of common use, but of uncommon use. We have been called not to desecrate ourselves, but to consecrate ourselves to God. Amen. To live set apart. Because holiness is not something that we've achieved. It's something that we have received by faith. It's not something that, that you that you that you can in and of yourself make efforts to be. It's something that God works in you and that you cooperate with. It is the gift of God. Paul will say to the church of Corinth, you were washed. You were washed. You have been sanctified. You've been set apart. Paul's reminding the church of, of a past event, light that's been given in the darkness, that has an immediate effect and then ongoing effects. It has an immediate, immediate effect of you, you've been clean. And now the ongoing effects are, are, and you're continuing to be clean. You're holy and you're increasingly being being made holy. It's why you've been called to God. So that in the end you might be presented to him as a pure bride. And in him find Mm -hmm. your greatest joy. How is peace preserved? It's as we increase in holiness. Not, de- not decrease in holiness. As we advance in Christ-likeness, not um, retreat from Christ-likeness. What's funny is, as I was preparing the sermon, I said to myself, we know this. As I'm saying this, you might even be saying, I know this. You do. Uh, certainly you do. I do. Let me encourage you with something that I, I just realized, and, and thanks be to God, it was the very first sermon, yes? For the next two or three years, Lord willing, if, he, if the Lord does not return, uh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. You are going, you and I are going to be hearing every time, probably, in the, the book of Corinth, the letter to the church of Corinth, um, this admonishment to sanctified living. So we're going to say, I know this, I know this. Here's what the Lord does when we know something. He helps us to know it better. We go, I know, but guess what? We start to know it better. We, we, I thought I knew that, and here's what happens. We know it clearer. I thought I knew that. Here's what happens. We don't just know it. We start to like live it increasingly more. The initial effects of being called into the light, the Holy Spirit working faith into his people through the gospel, the sinner hears, believes, they are at once justified, declared innocent, first upon the, based upon the personal work of Christ. The saint is then set apart, sanctified in Christ Jesus, sanctified calling, and their manner of life is marked by increasingly becoming holy. You're holy, and then the manner of our lives is marked by our increasingly becoming holy. Why is that? Because we now share in the life of God. <clears throat> you know people, uh, and you meet them, and you find commonality with them. And then, I'm talking about husbands and wives, and then, all, and then after a certain time, 
the husband starts sounding like the wife and the wife starts sounding like the husband. The, the, um, the habits of the husband become habits of the wife and the habits of the wife become habits of the husband. They, they begin to share life in such a way that their lives begin to mirror one another. They begin to say the same things that, that the other person says. Do the same things that the other person does. Uh, my dear wife, her sister will say to, to her sometimes, you, you act like your husband. And I can tell you this, that in, in the, um, the glorious 13, coming up on 13 to 12 years that my wife and I are, are going to be married, I have also become a better man because of the good woman who, is, who I've been sharing life with. It's what, well, my point is, it's, it's what happens when you share in the life of God. You don't become less like God, you become more like God. And if you're becoming less like God, then you need to ask yourself, whose life am I sharing? Whose life now lives in me that, that is, is being affected inwardly to the outward? Paul connects sanctification and holiness to being rooted in Christ. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. To the church who has been called, set apart, they, we are united because of Christ. We are one because of Christ. So the church has been set apart as holy. If we are in Christ, then we are likewise becoming like Christ because we are in Him. Anything that is Christ-like is holy. Anything holy is Christ-like. The Word of God assumed our flesh. He... God and man assumed our flesh and did not do so in private so that no one could see. I hope that's clear. That's, that, I don't, don't, don't let that pass you by. The word of God assumed our flesh in public. He walked among us. We saw his glory. The glory of the only begotten son of God. We saw it. He did not hide it from us. So to the church who is in union with Christ, the church who is holy, sanctified, must manifest their consecration to God, not in, not in private. You have been called to live holy, not just privately, but publicly before men. So that what? So that all men may see your good works and give glory to God. Amen. Or we could say, <clears throat> you have been called out to live your consecrated status in Christ. You remember the, the, the interior and inferior, both here and here, lived out there, pouring out into your hands and feet. We're, we're saints by calling, sanctified in Christ Jesus, so that you may have light and then carry light wherever you go. We're going to hear a lot in, in 1 Corinthians, be a light, carry that light wherever you go. Paul called to be an apostle. To be an apostle with apostolic witness so that every Christian, so that he would call people into the light. So that he would call us to possess, like Joshua, that which we already have as our divine gift. To reflect our, our status that we have in Christ as being those who are set apart as holy. Amen. Let, me, let me close this. <clears throat> Paul is uniquely called by God to live Christ-likeness. And to help people grow in Christ likeness. We have, we the church have been called to live in Christ likeness as a witness to others so that they might too come to Christ. That requires sanctified, holy living on our part. Amen. As the church, we need pastors to teach, to model, and to grow in Christ likeness. You, you need that from me, and I need that of myself. We need our deacons to model and grow in Christ likeness. We need our members to grow and to model and grow in Christ like this. We need each other to help us in that growth and holiness. We need to grow in hearing the doctrine of sanctification. And we're going to hear it throughout this whole letter. One thing to be reminded of is, is this was a young church. I said this in our Sabbath school. Christ, uh, Paul planted this church in, in the year AD 50. This letter was written maybe three to five years later, which means this. Not only is this church as it, as it is constituted only three to five years old, but the believers are only, have only been saved maybe three to five years in the church. Wow. 
it makes sense why they why Paul is writing to to them and correcting them on so much immaturity. He says you're acting like babies because they were babies. I can only give you milk, not solid food because they're still infants. They're still growing in Christ. We are still growing in Christ. I know some of you who have known me since I was a little kid. That's how long you've been saved. And I know some of you, like our dear brother Mario, who confessed this morning, two or three years been saved. We are all still growing in Christ, but we don't want to remain immature. You don't want your little ones to remain dependent upon you to, to change their diapers and to give them bottles for the rest of their, of their lives. It would be a shame, right? If our, our dear sweet Davina came to church still holding a bottle, um, still needing dad and mom to feed her. Instead, we see, and I, this, I mean this as a, a compliment to you, uh, young lady. We see how mature she is. We see the manner in which she carries herself as a young woman. The responsibility of, of not just being big sister, but helping with the little ones as well. We want to grow. I use that as an example. We want to grow in Christ. We need to grow in Christ. We cannot remain infant, uh, immature. And anything that, that, that hints or smells like immaturity, saints of God, run from it. Run from it. We need men and women to model and to grow in what it means to be a man and woman of God. And I'll say this in closing, and we must long for teachers who will not allow us to be comfortable being immature. Amen. Who will push us when we need to be pushed. Who will challenge us when we need to be challenged. Who will correct us when, whether we like it or not, we need to be corrected. If we are not walking according to our call, tell me. If I'm not. And though it may not be enjoyable, I need it. And I trust that you're allowing me the same door open to walk in my responsibility. One of it's being accomplished right now to instruct and correct. So that why we must grow so that we can grow in holiness. I, I, I challenge you, saints, don't be offended when that happens. Rejoice. Amen. Because your pastors love you enough to not let you stay immature. Thank God that someone loves me enough to tell me. Yes. I had something on my face. I went through the whole day. You know what? You, you, no, I'm just. You ever had that as an example? And you start to think of all the people who saw that on your face until finally someone said you got. You got a little smudge there. And you think about all the people throughout the day who let you go on your day with the smudge. We as fellow Christians, as those who are in the light, if we recognize darkness, if we recognize immaturity, we will love you enough to say it's there. That's right. Amen. Sometimes I... All of us are different. I said this to I must. I said this to the kids, uh, to the people in Sabbath school. I can't correct. I can't. Ex, I don't have the same expectations for Nazareth that I do for Azariah. I have to say sometimes to my oldest, "You're not three. and I have to remember that my three-year-old is not eleven. And I and I will say this with love, and I'm learning that about the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all at different maturity levels, but nonetheless, each one will be called to grow. I won't leave the three-year-old alone and go, ah, he's three. No, he's going to be four, and he needs to grow in that. And I won't allow the 11-year-old to stay 11 for the rest of his life. He's going to be 12, and he needs to grow in that. So it is with you believers. We will expect more out of you, just like you expect more out of your elders to grow in Christ. Thirdly, why? Why? Why for all of this in closing? 
to the church of the Lord of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ, Jesus sanctified calling, listen to this, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Why have we been called? So that we together with everyone can live out the purpose for our existence. In unity, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Call was Paul to call us. We are called to live a certain way so that at the very end of it all, we can all together with one voice in glory call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To God be the glory. Let us pray.